0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Journey to Success Radio Network. My name is Tom Tutal Cunningham. I'm a Napoleon Hill Foundation certified instructor, motivational speaker, helping people to live positively with and through the challenges of life. I've had rheumatoid arthritis from my jaw right to my toes since the age of five. That's 46 years now. And in that time, I've had four hips, four knees, and two shoulders replaced, which makes me sound like a spider, and I've been hospitalized about forty times. I also stand about five foot one, hence the nickname Too Tall, and that's due to the heavy daily doses of the steroid prednisone that I took to fight my arthritis. Despite my physical challenges, everybody knows I always answer amazing when asked how I'm doing. I tell people that 80% of the time it's true. The other 20% of the time, it's to remind myself that it's true. So find out more about me at my website and uh, about this radio interview as well. It's Tom, the number two, and tall, T-A-L-L dot com. Now, my guest today is uh, probably my most exciting guest ever, Ben Gay III, he'll be speaking at the two-day Ultimate Mastermind Summit in Chicago along with myself and many other speakers in September. Thanks to Tony Robleski for uh, inviting me to be part of that. So, Ben's sales training materials, the Closer Series, and Sales Closing Power Books are synonymous with professional selling. I read both of them many years ago. So, let me tell you about Ben Gay III. He has worked continuously as a commissioned salesman since he was 14 years old when he was just 18 Ben was the number one salesperson at Macy's in Atlanta, as well as the youngest buyer in Macy's then 100-year history. He was the number one salesperson in a large organization of manufacturers' representatives in a major food brokerage company, in the largest network marketing company in the world at the time, in a 50-year-old management consulting firm, and in yet another international direct sales company. In fact, Ben has been the number one salesperson in every organization he's ever been in. And through his coaching, consulting, books, audio programs, video programs, newsletters, teletraining sessions, speeches, and seminars, Ben Gay has helped train directly and indirectly, literally, millions of professional salespeople around the world. While all of that would have kept most people busy, he's also authored 12 books on the subject of selling and living successfully, while ghostwriting another dozen or so for other sales trainers, speakers, and seminar leaders. In fact, it's been said that if you're really a student of professional selling, you have at least one of Ben Gay's books in your personal library, whether you know it or not. He also writes two newsletters, The Closer's Update and The Closer's Alert, that have been called the Voices of Professional Selling. He created and taught the famous People Builders program for the inmates and staff at California's infamous San Quentin State Prison he was nicknamed the attitude coach for the Apollo 15, 16 and 17 astronauts by Colonel James Irwin commander of Apollo 15 then in 1976 he launched the 800 number call center industry very cool by founding the National Communication Center as you know that started a business revolution that totally changed the way we all shop and communicate. He was the founder and is the current executive director of the National Association of Professional Salespeople. He shared his knowledge with literally millions of salespeople around the world through his sales training material, speeches, seminars, and TV and radio appearances. But today, he is all ours. Welcome to the show today, Ben. Ben. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate
1: that. You are an enthusiastic radio host. It would be exciting to hear you read a phone book.
0: <laughs> now, uh, you've been con- in commission sales, many, even great salespeople. I was even nervous at sometimes to take commission-only sales since you were 14, and I read your books over 20 years ago, the first two, so... You are not a spring chicken. You have been in the sales game a long time, haven't you?
1: That's true. I'm, I'll be uh, 72 this year, fortunately in good health and still going strong. Uh, but I've been at it a long time. Whatever 72 minus 14 is, there's your answer.
0: <laughs> we'll figure that out later. 57, I think, uh, 58, 58, a lot of years. Now, one of the most fascinating things, coolest things that I found out about you is you worked directly with Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale, and J. Douglas Edwards, uh, among the many others, but those three uh, impressed me the most. Uh, First of all, that's why I kind of mentioned you're not a spring chicken, because Napoleon Hill's been dead for some time uh, now. And uh, so tell me, how did you end up working with these giants of the personal development sales training industries? Uh, Because I'm impressed about that.
1: Well, Tom, what happened was uh, I used to be the youngest this and the youngest, you know, the youngest buyer at Macy's, the youngest president of a major company in America with international roots, Um, so it was young, 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 young. Well, the gentleman you're talking about, Napoleon Hill, the first time I met him was already an old man. I was in my mid-20s. Earl Nightingale was on the USS Arizona at Pearl Harbor when it was hit. Interesting story I'll share with you sometime and uh, how he survived that. Well, that was the day I was conceived When they hit Pearl Harbor, my dad came home from uh, where he had a studio in Rochester, New York, was with my mother for one night. So we literally know the day I was conceived, my point being, Earl was serving in the Navy on the Arizona, and I was nine months away from being born. So a lot of these connections, it was the fact that I got in real young. I I got in the MLM business when I was 22 and was running uh, the biggest company of its kind at 25. Now, how I met Dr. Stone. One day, uh, the owner of the company, William Penn Patrick, one of my major mentors, second only perhaps to my father, um, came to my door and standing next to him was this little old man on a cane uh, and, and my first reaction was, oh no, because every time Bill opened my door and there was a stranger with him, uh, it was some old friend of his, and Bill would say, build a company around him. So that's how we started Bob Cummings Vitamins, Stay Power Motor Oil Additives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, in addition to the main company, Holiday Magic, uh, Cosmetics. So I thought, what am I gonna, I guess I'm gonna have to build a company on multi-level marketing wheelchairs. You know, how your mind races quickly. And uh, so I walked around my desk, came out, shook his hand. I said, hi, I'm Ben Gay. And he said, I'm Dr. Napoleon Hill, but call me Nappy. I'll tell you a cute story, Tom. I I never uttered the word Nappy, not even in storytelling about him, until he died. I could not bring myself to say Nappy to a man who had had such a powerful influence on so many people. So Bill Patrick said to me, uh, I, this is a birthday gift for you. I forget whether it was literally my birthday or not, but he that's the way he phrased it. He said, I've hired Dr. Hill to be your personal mentor. The term coach wasn't tossed around in those days. To be your personal mentor. There will be absolute confidentiality between the two of you. Therefore, you can discuss with him those things you might be hesitant to discuss with me. You know, if you're the president of the company and you don't know what to do and you're scared and you're young and so on, it's not a treat to run down the hall to the chairman of the board and tell him that you don't know what to do and you're scared or whatever. I, I thought it might threaten my job, and I guess Bill sensed that. So... He retained uh, Dr. Hill to work for me. It turned out to be the last two, three years of his life, and uh, he was physically frail but mentally sharp as a tack. And I spent many joyful hours, uh, primarily in California. He would generally come out. He liked the Bay Area, so he would. If it was, do like, I go back or does he come out? He always preferred coming out and had uh, a favorite restaurant in, in Marin County that he loved to sit in and talk for hours and so on. Uh, so that was how the relationship started, and I, I can tell you all sorts of interesting stories about him. But one of the things that, that I've, I've found as I've gotten older and perhaps a little wiser and not as threatened by other people and, and uh uh, these legends and myths that grew up around people. The, the joyful message I've tried to give to people most recently is that, is that Dr. Hill was a normal guy, as was Earl Nightingale, as was J. Douglas Edwards. He didn't sit in the restaurant with me for hours and read to me from Think and Grow Rich. We just talked and uh, it, it slowly dawned on me over the years that people think, you know, they look up at somebody like Dr. Hill and say, well, oh, I could never be like that. He's this mystical, godlike creature. He was just a nice guy who wrote a great book and led a very interesting life full of lots of ups and lots mm-hmm. of downs.
2: Exactly. And
1: so the, the good message is, I think, the good news is that, yes, you can be Dr. Hill. Yes, you can be Earl Nightingale. You may not have that deep resonance voice that Earl had, uh, but you can make up for it in other ways. But Earl had his problems. J. Douglas Edwards, uh, the great sales trainer of the 50s and 60s and early 70s, committed suicide. So uh, these are the, and that didn't come as a shock to me. I'd worked up close and personal with him for a lot of years. And I knew his insecurities and so on. Now, I don't say that to put people down who are dead. I'm talking to the people who are alive saying, yes, you can do it. I knew these folks. knew them personally. I was in their home. They were in my home. We spent hours in restaurants and in seminar meeting halls and so on. And backstage where the real conversations take place and everybody's not on script. Um, and uh, they were just regular guys who... who uh, Uh, worked hard, and if you try swing hard enough, often enough, eventually you're going to hit one out of the park, and they did and got remembered for it. Let me tell you how how come you and I are talking about Dr. Hill, talk about a small world. You mentioned that I bought a uh, uh, 50-year-old company, a management consulting company. It was called the Personnel Institute. It was founded in 1939 by Morris Pickus. And by the time I met him, he was ready to retire. Again, all my friends are always considerably older than I am. Uh, he was ready to retire, so I bought half the company, then I bought the other half. But while doing that, and this was after my time with Dr. Hill, uh, Hill's name came up in in some manner. I forget, and Morris said, yes, uh, he owed me a great deal. And I said, he was smiling when he said it, but I said, what does that mean? He said, well, he wrote Think and Grow Rich, and it had a little bubble burst for about 60 days, and then it went away. It was forgotten, uh, along with Dr. Hill. And he said, but I bought a copy. I bought several copies. He said, I used to give them to clients as sort of a door opener. He said, I bought a copy, and I, when I went to uh, call on W. Clement Stone at the Combined Insurance Company, I brought a copy with me. And I handed it to him, and he read it. Not on the spot, but he read it and loved it, said it changed his life. Somebody finally put down in reasonably easy-to-understand English those things that people who are very successful know but they have a hard time expressing. Uh, And uh, So he, he was just crazy about the book, and he insisted, bought thousands of them right off the bat, and insisted that every salesperson who joined combined insurance or any of its subsidiaries buy and read the book. And that alone, over the years, with the turnover there is in that type of business, sold hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies, maybe a million or more, and rescued Think and Grow Rich and Dr. Hill from relative obscurity. Mm-hmm. So it's it's, it's funny, the, the, these people that have come into my life, from Morris Pickus to W. Clement Stone, Clement Stone was a good friend of mine by the time he passed, Dr. Hill, J. Douglas Edwards, Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all because... I joined an MLM company called Holiday Magic, Uh, worked hard, took me a while to get the message but after about six months of failure, I started succeeding big time and three years after I had joined the company, I was living in California and president of the whole operation Um, and at the time, you know, now there's 18 million MLMs all selling diet powders or whatever and uh, some are great and some are not so good, but that's beside the point. Back then, in the mid-'60s, you were in, in uh, it, we were bigger than Amway and Shackley combined at the wow. time. Wow. So if you were a mover or a shaker, you were in Holiday Magic Cosmetics or one of its a subsidiary companies. Zig Ziglar joined Holiday Magic in the same recruiting meeting I did September 15, 1965, in Atlanta, Georgia, at 1447 West Peachtree Suite, suite 300 at noon. It, 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 as you see, it made a little impact on me.
2: Uh, <laughs> two, things,
1: two things happened that day. My life turned around, and I started down the road, slowly at first, becoming a multimillionaire and traveling all over the world and with a fleet of airplanes and cars and all at my disposal, wherever I went in the English-speaking world, as we used to call it back then. And uh, it was because of that meeting, and I also met Zig at that meeting. He was, uh, uh, see, 16 years older than I was, so he was a grown man, I was a kid. But he hadn't succeeded in anything to speak of yet. He was a cookware salesman from Columbia, South Carolina. So everybody that was anybody in the sales, self-improvement industries either worked for Holiday Magic or were a supplier or supporter of the company, and I, through blind luck, I saw a little ad in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution one day that said, if you know anything about marketing plans, want to make more money, dial this number. I'd I'd never heard of a marketing plan, but I knew I wanted to make more money, so I dialed the number, went to the meeting, met Zig, joined the company. Uh, six months, I didn't make anything. The next six months, I made $101,000 part-time. I didn't want to give up my job as a food broker. Wow. And that's $101,000 in 1965 dollars. That's a, oh, yeah. about a million dollars today, part-time.
0: Wow. Wow. Long
1: long answer to a short question, but how it happened wasn't I was some genius. I was literally in the – I write in the closers part two that I walked up a ramp not knowing what it was. You might picture Noah's Ark, you know, with the giraffes and the elephants going up the ramp. And I walked up the ramp not really knowing what was going on. The door slammed behind me. I felt a rumble, and the rocket took off, and I was on it.
0: Nice. Well, uh, Ben, because of my association with the Napoleon Hill Foundation, I speak at a lot of their events. I'm very close to Judy Williamson, the Educational Director at the Napoleon Hill World Learning Center in Hammond, Indiana, which Clement Stone has been uh, paid for, left in his will. He's the one who basically found, funded and founded the Napoleon Hill Foundation. You are right. Judy Williamson takes a lot of time at every leader certification course to remind people that Napoleon Hill was just a person Just like everybody in the class is a person And if you read his biography And if you speak to Dr. J.B. Hill His grandson Who even knows more about the, his life than what's in his biography You'll find uh, Hill had ups and downs He had uh, marriage problems uh, Dr. J.B. Hill His uh, grandson says uh, He has him on tape Saying was married five times uh, He had ups and downs financially uh, Big downs, big ups And so as you said, uh, amazing books, great, interesting life, met those successful people, put it in one formula, amazing to follow those two, even just, just Think and Grow Rich and Law of Success along the other ones, amazing, just an ordinary person, amazing life powerful philosophy. And W. Clement Stone, uh, he's basically the reason people remember Napoleon Hill still today, why the Napoleon Hill Foundation exists and grows and supports so many great uh, uh, things that they do. Uh, They give a lot of uh, scholarships away to kids who can't afford it, and all because of the gratuitous meeting of Stone and Napoleon Hill. And then you went on and talked about my other favorite, Zig Ziglar. So right in the same how it would blow me away being in a direct sales meeting and Zig Ziglar signing up with me. Very cool. Well, there were just two of us
1: there that day. A gentleman by the name of Bill Dempsey, who passed away recently, uh, recruited us. And uh, there were just two of us, I guess, who'd answered the ad. So it was very informal. We went to Bill's office and- sat in front of his desk, and he got up and drew the circles, you know, the -hmm. the four positions and all that stuff, Mm -hmm. and uh, it looked good to me. I was young and desperate trying to put a wife through nursing school, and uh, so I bought in, and Zig, uh, I, I really don't remember his asking a bunch of questions or anything, but he got it rather quickly, and so we both joined at the same time. I was on one corner of Bill's desk signing the application, and Zig was on the other corner.
0: Wow, that is uh, incredible. <laughs> now, okay, so it's gratuitous to meet these people. Very, very cool gratuitous, but uh, you still <laughs> were number one salesperson in every company you worked with. There has to be something different, special, unique about your process and your thinking and your actions. Um, Because number one in all those companies, Zig had some good records, number three or number six out of thousands and did very well, but number one in every company, and those are all different kinds of companies. uh, Are there some things, tips, ideas, things that you could share that make you different than everyone else who wants to be number one in their sales company? Well, like Dr. Hill and Earl Nightingale, I'm not
1: different. I'm just a regular guy, a high school graduate, and I've had my ups and downs. I moved into this town in 1970, in Placerville, California, where I am now. In 1976, drove into town, having achieved all these wonderful things we've been talking about. I drove in in a borrowed Mercury Bobcat that a guy lent me, who uh, I had bought hundreds of cars from. I bought the Rolls-Royce Zig one, for instance, in the contest. Uh, uh, Zig won a Rolls-Royce. We had a nationwide year-long contest. I came in first and, I, and and won the secret prize. Well, the secret prize was becoming president of the company. Because it was a secret, I'm sure if I hadn't measured up, Bill Patrick would have changed the secret prize to a trip to Hawaii or something. But, but I became president. <laughs> Zig became uh, it came in second, won a Rolls Royce, somebody else won a Lincoln, somebody else won a Thunderbird, and so on down the line. Um, but my point was, I've had my ups, and a guy I bought hundreds of cars from uh, to give away his prizes, but primarily Lincolns and a Stutz cat and Rolls Royces and so on, was kind enough to lend me, he said he wanted back in 30 days, a Mercury Bobcat to drive up here in where I was going to start over I'd lost the house, the fancy cars had been towed away and I had 45 cents in my pocket when I drove out of Marin County and I didn't know having never driven up towards Sacramento in my life me with the hands on the wheel if I ever was up this way somebody must have driven me or, or they flew me in, I didn't know you had to cross the Carquinas Bridge which is a toll bridge back then it was 40 cents to cross it so they took uh, 40 of my last 45 cents. So I drove into this town with a nickel in my pocket in a borrowed Mercury Bobcat and started, started the 800 answering service business. And I remember saying that, you know, what makes you different? Maybe being stupid helps. Uh, when I, my mother knew what had happened, I was talking to her on the phone one day and she said, so what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to start this new industry. It's, uh, we're going to call it uh, the National Communication Center. We're going to share 800 lines. Uh, back then, you an 800 line now for $5 a month. Back then, they were $10,000 per month minimum in advance. And at the end of the month, you got a bill for the 240 hours that bought you plus any overtime, uh, which was costly. So nobody could afford an 800 lines. All Basically, what I did was I time-shared... Uh, 800 numbers and let you uh, leave messages there for $50 a month or $100 a month, whatever it was. Uh, and I figured out a way to get enough people r- rather quickly to do that to pay the phone bill, although it was a little challenging in the beginning. But when I told my mother that, she said, Ben, have you ever thought about getting a job? <laughs> and I, <laughs> I said, who do you think you're talking to? Uh so, so part of it is stupidity. I mean, if a, guy, if a guy came to me and said, I'm down to one nickel and the car parked in front isn't mine, I have to have it back in 30 days, but I think I'm going to start a new industry, I would say to him, sit down, let me talk to you. I'll put a cold rag on your head. And,
0: uh, we'll <laughs> You'll be okay in the morning.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll figure out a little more intelligent way to, to approach this problem. So stupid, stupidity can be very helpful, or ignorance anyway hard to fix but ignorance can be fixed
0: but also when you've done done so well when you've done so many things so well doesn't it always give you the knowledge and the self-confidence that hey i've done this like seven times already so let's go for eight Uh, i find that for myself for living with pain and the range of motion restrictions the annoyances i put up with that anything i come against now i'm like compared to this like that's all yeah. you got for me and so <laughs> even when you get down if you have that attitude that so what I'm going to be back up doesn't make me less of a person my friends are still my friends there's a certain nicety about knowing that I would imagine well my the kindest thing my
1: father and, and mother did to me my father was sort of the dominant personality in the family that they were both equally responsible for me and my sister in our upbringing, but what they really did for me without knowing the term, Jim Newman at the PACE seminars had not yet coined the term comfort zone, but what they did was they raised me in a, in a home where we always owned our own business. East Lake Country Club was two Bobby Jones' home course, one of the great courses in the world, was two blocks down the street and we were members. That's the royal we. I didn't contribute to it. I, charge, <laughs> I just charged hamburgers there. But I grew up meeting the chairman of the board of coca-cola uh bobby jones the, the head of home depot who, you know was just getting started and so on uh and I, that was sort of my lifestyle so when i said i was leaving home dad wished me well and uh but the money stopped and access to the club stopped and so on then i got married and, and walked into i'll never forget it walked into this ratty apartment it's now a very prestigious building having been redone called the Ponce in Atlanta, Georgia. But we had two rooms of the Ponce with no kitchen, no sink. We washed dishes from the bathtub, et cetera. And uh, to get to the bedroom from the only other room, you had to go through the bathroom. So if somebody was in there, you had to open the window, go out right on the balcony, open the other window and climb <laughs> in that way. And, and I remember the first day looking around saying, what is this? I didn't know people lived like that. My comfort zone had been set to be successful, and that's when I started reading the one ads for the first time in my life. That's where I found that little ad and took off. So, yeah, uh, I've reset my own comfort zone since then, but in the beginning, they were set for me. Now, as to how did I succeed in selling, I came early, I stayed late, and I worked on weekends, no matter what I was doing. Uh, and uh, when uh, at Holiday Magic, I was introduced to the wonderful world of planned presentations, scripts. And the reason I didn't make any money the first six months I was in that business, not a dime changed hands. I not only didn't make a profit, <laughs> I, didn't sell a, I didn't sell a tube of lipstick. It was like I hadn't joined. And uh, uh, finally, Bill Dempsey called me over a, one night at a meeting and said, Ben, we don't want you coming back to the meetings anymore. And I said, why? I'm not being disruptive. And he said, no, you're being depressing. You never bring anybody to the meetings because you haven't bothered to learn the script of what you say when you invite somebody to a meeting. If you had somebody here, you wouldn't know how to close them because I know for a fact you've never learned that. I've seen you try and help other people with their prospects and lose them for them. You can't be of any assistance to us in general because you haven't learned the forty-five-minute word-for-word presentation from the front of the room. It was an hour-long meeting, but part of it was a movie. Um, and so, what you're doing is you're just depressing people. You're re- reminding people, as you know in MLM, the failure rate is quite high, or the or the don't succeed rate is quite right. high, right. Uh, and. Uh, uh he said, so what you're doing is reminding people who are struggling themselves that even Mr. Personality can't do it. He said, you're friendly, you're charming, you're funny, you know, love all that but I don't want you coming back to the meetings. And I said, well, I've got $5,000 I didn't have sunk into this. I got Jimmy Rucker, my running buddy and first business partner, to sell his 57 Chevrolet to come up with 2500 Got another gentleman who sort of half-heartedly joined us to put a second mortgage on his house for 2500 That raised the 5000 we needed to start out. And uh, uh, so I, I said, I can't afford to fail. And he said, well, good. Uh, take whatever time you need, learn the presentation, the invitation, the meeting itself, and what you do when the, when the lights come back up and they, your prospects turn to you like the film just told them to do. And when you can do all of that verbatim, come to my office and perform for me, and then and only then you can come back to the meetings. So it took me a couple of weeks as best I recall, but I memorized everything. Uh, later, as President, I rewrote the scripts and made it even better. But in starting out, I was doing it the Bengay way. I'm a winner. I started my own business at 14. Da-da-da-da. I don't need to know this. I don't need to know that. And I was dead wrong. So come early, stay late, work on weekends, and learn the best way, call it the script, the plan, presentation, whatever, learn and memorize the best way to present your business, your service, your opportunity, whatever it is, and stick with it. Uh, until something, you know, a little tweak is made that makes it even better, and then say that to lots of people. Selling is two things oversimplified. Numbers, the number of times you make a presentation, whether it's by the Internet or phone or in person or what have you, or direct mail, however you do it, it's numbers and closing skills. I can expand that to say selling skills because close most people think comes at the end of the presentation when, in fact, it comes at the beginning, but whatever. Uh, uh, Numbers of prospects and closing skills. That's it. So if you come early, stay late, work on weekends, you can fix the numbers. Meanwhile, if you're getting better and better and better at presenting your situation to people, your closing ratio starts to go up. And then uh, Jim Rohn used to say a thing. We were friendly rivals. Uh, His boss, Bill Bailey, had been the president of Holiday Magic briefly before I was. Um, So we used to uh, go back and forth all the time, and Jim was fond of saying, uh, if I can only close one out of ten sales, and you can close five out of ten sales, he would say this to to seminar groups, he said, I will beat you.
0: Because I will call
1: on more people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'll
1: just outwork you. I will beat you. Meanwhile, I'll be getting better, but I will outwork you. And that... Of course, work is sort of a stumbling block, as you know, Tom, for a lot of people in business. I saw something on the Internet the other day that uh, opportunity sometimes comes cleverly disguised as work.
0: Right. And
1: And, (laughs) that turns most people off. Exactly, so and when you're on it.
0: commission sale, you're your own boss, so it's Slight. easy to talk yourself into deserving an early lunch, uh, deserving to uh, take time off during the day to go here, go there, and pretty soon uh, your boss is not helping you at all to take <laughs> action. Or oh, so telling, to to, telling you not to come to the meetings. Yeah. Or follow the script. <laughs> hey, I've been in sales a long time. These guys are goofs. This is such a simple script. I can invent one better. Yeah, 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 sure, 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 sure. Uh and and then they become afraid of even approaching anybody and so yeah, numbers, just dawn to dusk, work as much as you can, talk to as many people. Uh love Zig Ziglar used to say he could tie a order pad around a dog's tail, let him run around town all day and somebody's gonna sign it. Uh, That often (laughs) enough, Uh, yeah, just numbers, and and then work hard, and you get better. Uh, How did you get started? Like, what was the first sales job? Uh, Did your parents say, good job, or like, why did you take that? And like, surely being number one in all these companies, you didn't start in sales like a professional right away.
2: No, not at
1: fourteen. Uh, what I did at 14 in Atlanta in the summer was decide I wanted to go into the lawn mowing business. At the end of the first day, it was probably, I'm making up numbers because I don't remember, it was probably 90 some odd degrees with 90% humidity. At the end of the first day, I discovered that Ben Gay was not cut out for manual labor. I really don't like being hot and miserable and so on. So I was complaining to my father about it. And I'll, I'm, again, I'll make up numbers. I don't remember what it was. But let's say I charged $5 back then to mow a yard. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in the uh, early, uh, let's see, 42, in the mid-50s, that's probably about right. Right.
0: Uh, and,
1: uh, and so I'm, as I said, I worked like a dog. I made $10 or $15 or something like that. And uh, uh, it just, it's not worth it. And he said, and I, so th- this has been gay after one day <laughs> in, his, in his new business is figuring out how, how to quit and return the lawnmower to my father because I borrowed it from him. And he said, he sat me down. And he says, all right, there's a better way to do this. He said, you've got a sparkling personality. You're blessed with a gay charm. So what I want you to do is sell the jobs and get your buddies who don't have the courage to sell the jobs to do the work. Mm-hmm. And I said, if we charge them $5 and they want $5 because they think that's what they could get even though they're not getting any jobs, uh, where do I fit in? He said, you don't charge $5. You tell the people that you, you want to mow their lawn, that you will uh, bring in the right person to do it, and you will inspect the job, and they can pay you what they think the job was worth. Hmm. Well, little break, break in uh, thinking there. Suddenly, the people who were paying me five dollars uh, at the end of the job, being well done, were paying me ten. So I gave five to the mower. One uh, name comes to mind: David Bannister, worked for me as a young boy. I was a young boy too. I gave him the five dollars. He didn't have the nerve to go, you know, ask for the job. Yeah. So He got everything without having to do that, and I got five. And all I had to do was have a brief conversation on the doorstep and maybe a five-minute walk around later in the day. So suddenly I had, at peak times, it varied, and kids are not terribly reliable, but at peak times I had 15 or 20 kids working for me, mowing lawns at high speed. It was all I could do to drive around or ride around on my bike. And uh, pick up the ten and the twenty dollars that used to be five and ten dollars, cetera. We even did. It was a house right near the home I grew up in that had been a mini mansion, but it had gotten overgrown. Maybe somebody died or or what have you. It sort of turned into a jungle. And I heard the guy was out of town. We'd ask him to do his lawn a couple, his yard a couple times, and he grumpily turned us down. He said he didn't have the money or something. So. One day on the slack day, I took four or five of our people over there, and we turned that jungle into a little oasis. We uncovered bird baths. I'm not even sure he, he knew he had, and fish ponds and, and everything. Wow. And, and when he came back, he drove in the driveway, and I was standing in our front yard looking over there, wondering if he was going to call the police or what. And he waved me over, and I went over, and he gave me $100. Wow. Which, back then, it would be like somebody giving you $1,000 today. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it was you know, some way, somehow, where there's a will, there's a way, and so on. We did it. Let me uh, share something else where you said, how would you do it? This is something that came to me over the years, but two big breakthroughs in thinking. One, 85% it's a number I made up, but I could almost back it up and prove it on a calculator. 85% of all the problems in selling go away. If you sell a quality product or service that is competitively priced, not the cheapest, I did not say that, competitively priced to qualified people, you spend your time talking to people qualified to buy, either financially, personally, spiritually, whatever, Uh, qualified to buy your product or service. Then you do a planned presentation, That's well thought out. That's 85% of all the problems in selling. Into the other 15% goes you as a person, becoming a person of class, quality, and substance, Mm -hmm. and product knowledge, which is about 5% of most selling situations. When you sell a car, I'm I'm guessing it's got 10,000 parts on it. Uh, you know, nuts, bolts, this and that, Mm -hmm. and so on. The salesperson only needs to know about five of them. Here's the steering wheel. Here's how you open the hood. This is the brake. Drive around the block and see what you think of it. So 85% of the problems go away if you sell a quality product that's competitively priced to qualified people. Meanwhile, becoming a person of class, quality, substance, that could be how you look, how you carry yourself, etc. Then you need to know that most sales, I I sell books on how to close sales, but but they're actually designed to tell you what goes into the presentation itself, into your scripted presentation. You have to know the psychology that's going on. However, most sales are made or lost in the first 60 seconds of the encounter. So while people are getting ready to give their presentation and getting ready to start the mud wrestling and the overcoming of objections and so on, they don't realize that in that first 60 seconds the prospect has scanned you like a science fiction movie and based on your appearance, the way you conduct yourself, how you're dressed, etc., whether you're chewing gum or not, whether you're of cigarettes or not, or whatever, they're scanning you and comparing you to everyone else they've ever met, good and bad, and all their other life experiences. And if you if you understand that that's when the sell-in really goes on, in the first 60 seconds, uh, life gets a lot easier for you. Then you just have to have a quality product, et cetera, and you're home free. I went out and did some training. Uh, Service Corporation International, they're the largest cemetery, pre crematory people in the world. Did some training and script writing with them. And one day they asked me if I would ride with a young guy and, and make some calls and uh, show him how it's done. So I was thrilled he was with me because it was a little more technical. I didn't know how to measure a, you know, a plot and figure the marker and so on. At least he knew that. So we went out, and I'm making up numbers. I think I'm right about this. We called on, let's say, five people, and I closed four of them. And getting somebody to let you come in their house and talk about their impending doom and what we're going to do with their body when they're gone is not an easy sale, believe it or not. So... I got four out of the five, and as we're riding back to the office in Sacramento, uh, as we're driving back to the office, the guy says to me, uh, "Mr. Gay, I really enjoyed today, but I would have learned so much more if those four sales hadn't been laydown sales." So I, I pulled over to the curb, <laughs> turned <laughs> turned off the engine. and and gave him a lecture, and you know what the lecture was. They weren't lay-down sales. While you were trying to figure out how to get a glass of iced tea out of them or scratching your rear end or looking for a place to put down your briefcase, I was closing the sales, starting on the doorstep. In fact, I start closing the sale when I get out of the car because I assume, since they know what time I'm coming, they may be peeking out through the blinds looking at me. Hmm. That isn't the time to spit on the lawn, Uh, or do some other gross thing that men tend to do when they think nobody's looking. So he he kept waiting for the mud wrestling at the end of the presentation because that's all he ever experienced was mud wrestling, not knowing that it was all handled, everything but the details, in the first minute or so.
0: Wow, and people don't realize that, and as you said, after the minute's up, then they start... And sorry, they've already decided uh, against you, or you're going to have a seriously big hill to climb. And so you always be your best. When they're not looking, when you're in your car, when you're in their driveway, when you're walking up, everything, everything is what they're watching. So um, now your book, The Closers, now, hee hee. I'm 51. I remember in my 20s reading it and being like, wow, it was like, I can't describe the feeling Uh, as a salesperson who read some sales books and read that one. It's like, wow, this is incredible. This guy's amazing. And so when I booked this interview with you, I remembered back to then thinking, wow, remember what you felt when you read that book, and now you're interviewing the author? Like, how did the series, The Closers, come to be? Because in my mind, and I've read hundreds of books on sales, uh they're in the top five anyway top five what's (laughs) wrong well Zig's in there somewhere as well yeah (laughs)
1: yeah
0: all right i'll I'll give you that uh
1: and there's three of them so if if the three are in the top five i'm happy
0: yeah Um, and the hill napoleon hill wrote a sales uh, book as well uh how to sell yourself i think it was well, here's here's the story of the closers. On the closers,
1: what's now called part one, it used to be the co- closers, but when part two came along, we thought we probably ought to tell people why we called it number two since it was a number one. Uh, part one is the red raw meat of selling, the kicks, the blocks, the punches, selling the way it really is, not the way we wish it was. Uh, It's not politically correct in all spots, Uh, you know, in today's super-sensitive society, but that we plunge through that and explain what you need to know anyway. And the closers, part two, picks up where part one leaves off, showing you what sophisticated people really do with that raw information. Cary Grant said the secret of acting was not to get caught at it. That's also (laughs) the, the secret of selling. And that's covered in closers part two. Let's go back to one for just a second. Part one. Uh, I didn't on the on the front of the cover it says Ben Gay the third editor inside uh, in the first paragraph or so it says who claims to have written the the first book. I won't give his name because I have reason to doubt that, but I've, I've, no one stepped forward to take credit yet, so I've left it that way. <laughs> anyway. I saw a little ad in the Wall Street Journal, it was a one ad, and my attraction to it, the reason I was going with a penknife through the Wall Street Journal, was I was (laughs) looking for businesses that didn't have an 800 number. When I started the National Communication Center, 95% of all Americans did not know an 800 number was free to them uh, to call. So we had to educate the public, create an industry, create a business after it took off. It's sort of like building an airplane after you start flying, so after you're already in the air. So I saw this little ad, and like many others that day, it didn't have an 800 number, so I clipped it out, and we had a form letter. It was individually typed at high speed, but a form letter that went to people, you know, hi, here's your ad, clipped on the bottom, and results will go up, whatever it was, 50%. It just have an 800 number in it, da-da-da, and it won't cost you nearly as much as you think it will and so on. So that was my real interest. But as I clicked that particular ad out, I noticed it said something about closing. It was so poorly written, I wasn't sure they were selling a book. But I, so I put in my whatever it was, 1995 check, sent it down to word processing with a note, send out the standard letter, but put the check in there also because uh, I want to buy the book. Weeks went by. If they'd never sent it, I would have forgotten it. I already had forgotten it. And then this package arrives. It looked like a uh, kindergarten uh, art project. Markers pen, poorly written on the outside, (laughs) handwritten. uh, And it came postage due, not the whole (laughs) amount. They they hadn't put quite enough postage on it, so whoever picked up our mail that day had to pay a dollar or something to bail it out. And they handed it to me. I opened it up, and I thought, oh, yeah, I dimly remember ordering this. I went to flip through the pages And, Tom, they shot all over the office. It was like a deck of cards. And then when I started really looking at it, part of the pages were bound in upside down. I don't know about the ones that shot all over the office. I wasn't able to see them quick enough. And uh, so I got down on my hands and knees, gathered it all up, put a rubber band around it, and went to uh, throw it in the trash can. Next to the trash can sits my, as it is right now at this very moment, my now 45-year-old Hartman briefcase, and it was sitting open, being somewhat thrifty. I couldn't bring myself to throw something I paid for in the trash can, and it had a rubber band around it, so I threw it in my briefcase. Weeks later, I'm flying to New York out of San Francisco, opened my briefcase, this is before the Internet and back-of-the-seat movies and everything, so there's nothing to distract me, started looking for something to read. There sat this ratty book with a rubber band around it. So it was a little art project. I took the rubber band off, put the pages in order. That took about an hour or so, and right side up. And then began half-heartedly coming through it, thinking, well, what I'll do with it now is I'll leave it in the seat back and let the people who clean up the plane worry about it. Mm-hmm. But about an hour into the reading, I, d- I realized, although the grammar was horrible, the spelling was bad, the printing was worse, and so on, I had found the Dead Sea Scrolls of selling. So when we landed at LaGuardia, I walked to the nearest payphone. For some of your listeners don't know what that is, it's a phone on a wall that you put money into. (laughs) (laughs) Right, (laughs) I saw one the other day
0: and my wife pointed it out. Look at
1: that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. what is
1: that? (laughs) Uh, Went over to the payphone, dialed the number in the back of the book, this guy answered, and I said, hi, I just finished reading a book called The Closers. And he said, well, Ben Gay, how are you, or Mr. Gay, or something. And I felt like I was on candid camera. I looked around for the hidden cameras, although well, they didn't really have them then. Uh, and, I, you know, they didn't have caller ID. And I said, I didn't give you my name. Uh, how would you know I was Ben Gay? And he says, well, we printed 500 copies of The Closers. We ran one ad one day in the Wall Street <laughs> Journal. We sold one book. So if you've read The Closers, your name is Ben Gay, and you live in Placerville, California. <laughs> I said, amazing. I said, well, I want to buy some for my people, and maybe we can talk about a future arrangement also. And he said, great. How many do you want? I said, well, how many do you have? And he said, like I said, we printed 500. We sold one. I don't have to go check. I have 499. So I bought them all. I gave them to my salespeople to give to their salespeople and pretty much forgot about it. But then people started saying, can I have more copies? Can we sell this as one of our products? So, long story, somewhat shorter, I called him back, negotiated the rights to the book, uh, international exclusive rights, and the right to rewrite it, edit it heavily. And I did. They sold one copy. We've sold, we quit counting it about 5 million years ago. So, fortunately, the one copy they sold was to me, sort of like, fortunately, Morris Pickus gave Think and Grow Rich, to Clem Stone. Oh, wow. And then and then, Sales Closing Power uh, by J. Douglas Edwards. I wrote that book for Doug's family after he died, but it came from his seminar material. So when I say I wrote it, I actually sort of edited that also. Things spoken right. casually from the stage don't necessarily read well on a book. So those are the sort of the, the, the three sacred items, I think, in the sales world. Sales Closing Power by J. Douglas Edwards, Closers Part 1, and Closers Part 2. And they're all available uh, on eBay at a, at a discount. Go to eBay, Ronzoni Books, R-O-N-Z-O-N-E Books, all one word. And she has a, a set of three at a discount you can get. Or you can buy them on my website bfg dot com. B is in Ben, F is in Frank, G is in Gay, the number three dot com, and we'll fix you up. But if you're in selling and don't already have those books, you owe it to yourself to get them. They are the foundation of modern selling. And the reaction you had when you started reading your first one is the one I hear all day, every day. I have people have said to me, "When I started reading the book, I got up and shut the door. I felt like I was getting information I shouldn't have." <laughs>
0: It's like reading Playboy. (laughs) (laughs) For the articles. (laughs) For the articles. There's pictures in it? (laughs) (laughs) And so how did you take the years of selling in person, face-to-face, across a table, uh, or, yeah, that's how most of especially direct sales is done, to writing, like, Not everybody has transferable skills. Someone can be an amazing salesperson, but you wrote two or you wrote a bunch of books that, wow! When I read them, they were powerful. So you were able to come become a good writer fairly easily or quickly, anyway.
1: Well, two things happened. One, I was raised in a house that demanded proper English be spoken. My mother was from New England, a college graduate. And uh, she sounded just like Catherine Hepburn. A, you didn't mess with her, and B, you spoke correctly, or you didn't speak. (laughs) Uh, And then, so with that basic background, I went to school, through school, and my senior year in high school, I met a lady, Miss Edith Griffin, who uh, I arrived late in her class, and I got a big laugh for doing that. I'd been gone for a couple of years at a private school, and so she knew that Ben Gay, the funny guy, was coming. And when I came skidding into the door late because I went to the wrong classroom, she said, Mr. Gay, I assume. (laughs) And I I, I thought, uh uh-oh, because she was known as tough. She got up, pulled a chair out of the line, you know, one of those little chairs with a desk built in, turned it around facing the class, put it beside her desk, and she said, you will sit here uh, all year. and I have two announcements for you. You will speak at graduation, and uh, you will win the state writing championship. And I'd never met the woman in my life, but apparently I'd left her reputation because I went there a couple of years before I went off to prep school. Um... And I was thinking to myself, boy, if you only knew. One, to speak at graduation, I thought you had to be the valedictorian, a salutary and I knew it wasn't a remote chance of that. If I graduated second in my class, it would have been from the bottom. And <laughs> then I'd never said anything in public and had no intention to, because I was like most people. It's the number one psychological fear ahead of death by fire. But I didn't know that she had the ability to decide who was going to give the prayer. So roughly nine months later, I stood up, came down the steps in the, the sea of graduates around me, walked up to the front of the stage, gave the stand-up signal, and 3,000 people who were there to watch us graduate stood up in the Atlanta Municipal Auditorium, and I thought, wow. And then I gave the prayer that I had written with her help and you know, her guidance uh, and memorized, and when I went back up the steps, it was a few years before it really actualized, but I went up the steps knowing I'm going to spend my life standing in front of people. And having won the state writing championship, uh, I'm going to write a bunch of stuff too. it didn't know, didn't know it was going to be about selling yet, but uh, that was it. Again, happenstance. If I had been assigned to the other English teacher's room instead of Ms. Griffin's room, you and I would not be talking today.
0: Yes. Yes, uh, and and these kind of things can happen to any kind of people. I, I think of my stepfather. He For 30-some years, he managed $13 billion bond fund for Manulife, and he's very, we he will regularly say that, you know, that just right timing, right person, right timing, and that probably in today's day and age, it would be very hard for him to duplicate it. But it's one thing to be in the right place at the right time. It's another thing to uh get the results that uh you've gotten and so yeah you can say you've been in a lot of right places at a lot of right times but the results are what shows because a lot of people are meet a lot of cool people at cool times but it doesn't they're not remarkably successful in everything they do like you've touched so far in your life well uh,
1: there's some luck involved i'm not humble but i kept coming back you know Come early, stay late, work on weekends, fail, get back up, fail, get back up. You just reminded me of something. You you just taught me something. I'm going to steal from you. Uh, I was at the right place at the right time several times in my life because I was in a lot of places. You see what I mean? (laughs) Yes. My, my, My odds increase significantly if I make 20 attempts and one takes off, and I say, well, he was lucky he was in the right place at
0: the right time. Well, give me credit for the 19 that didn't work out. Yes, yes, and so many of those stories are in very, well, in Zig's Pass, Napoleon Hill's past. um I'm sure there's some in W. Clement Stone's, I know in Earl Nightingale's. Everybody has those, and uh, I'm kind of known a little bit often for the ready, uh, fire, aim approach, because I just like to do a <laughs> lot of things, and uh, sometimes I screw them up because I didn't plan, but sometimes you learn as you go, and you're like, wow, that one worked out really well. But if you're a salesperson and kind of an entrepreneur, you're always looking for a cool opportunity, cool person, uh, but it's what you do with it when you come across it that's going to make the difference. And uh, so you've done a lot with a lot of the opportunities. As you say, they weren't all successful, but if you do a lot and you're above average in skill, talent, or ability because you do so much, Uh, you're going to produce good results. And I tell you, like, boy, I can understand how that guy... I still remember how I felt reading the closers, uh, the first two. Uh, It's like, wow, this is like the holy grail of sales. Uh, The only one I ever felt as close was Zig's uh, Secrets of Closing the Sale. But yours was just like... And if I even had thought for one second I could even be talking to you, I think I would have passed out. So uh, it's a a real honor. Uh, I'm looking forward. Uh, We're both at this Ultimate Mastermind Summit in Chicago, September 18th and 19th, thanks to uh, Tony Robleski. You can find it at Ultimate Mastermind Summit. Dot com, I believe is the website. And yours, uh, yours is pretty easy. What is it? BFG3.com, right?
1: Right. And if, when the little drop-down box comes down, if they put their, anyone who is listening to this call now or in the future, I may hear it on delay, uh, if they put their name and email in that little drop box, I think it asks for other information, but they can ignore that. Name and email, I'll yeah. give you a free, a free one-year subscription to the Closers Update newsletter.
0: Wow. Wow, that's uh, very cool. I'm going to do that today. Perfect. And I like the website. It's got all your products on there. Very well done. And as I said, uh I'm thinking back to like 25 plus years ago uh of myself back then thinking I am talking to the author of the Closers. <laughs> this is so cool. <laughs> so, thank you so much for your time today, Evan. Uh uh, I've interviewed a lot of people. Joe Girard was cool, but I remember how I felt like I was reading Playboy when I read that book, and, uh, to think of talking to the author is, like, pretty cool. So everybody come out and see us in September at the Ultimate Mastermind Summit. Uh, go to BFG3.com. Get those books. If you are in sales or network marketing, get those books. And follow them because they are like the Bible of sales. Uh, have yourself an amazing day, Ben. It was uh, really exciting. I'm going to be walking about three feet taller for a few days now. Okay, and you could use it at five, one. Exactly, exactly. <laughs>
1: Tommy, you have a great day. It was an
2: honor talking to you. Thank you so much. You too.